Hello and welcome to Grand Final History. In this episode, we go back to 1920, the 24th season of the VFL. 1920 was an Olympic year. Antwerp hosted the Games as a tribute to the people of Belgium just two years after the end of World War I. Australia competed as a standalone country for the first time. In previous games, there had been a combined team with New Zealand. Stinton Hewitt competed in the 10,000 metres and was the first Australian to run an Olympic marathon. He was also a boundary umpire in the Australian rules game played in London in 1916 by Anzac soldiers, providing yet another connection between the Olympics and football. Australia picked up two silver and one bronze at the Games. One Australian, however, did manage to get a gold medal. Dan Carroll was the playing coach of the USA rugby team that had a surprise win over the French in the only game of rugby for the 1920 Olympics. International affairs were also in the spotlight in 1920 with the establishment of the League of Nations, a forum for countries to cooperate and work together so that war would be banished. That did not go so well. Closer to home, 1920 was also the year that Qantas was established in far north Queensland, originally a regional airline serving Queensland and the Northern Territory It now spans the globe and has carried many VFL and AFL teams to and from games and some end-of-season trips that have not always gone so smoothly. It was also the year of the first flight from Melbourne to Perth. At the end of November, Frank Briggs flew businessman Jack DeGarris from Melbourne to Perth over three days. The Perth newspapers tracked the flight every step of the way although they were not sure where the plane would land. The big bird machine, as it was described, eventually landing at Belmont Racecourse after a flight time of 18 hours, 12 minutes, at 110 miles per hour. Fortunately for West Coast and Frio, flights are faster, safer and far more comfortable these days, albeit maybe less exciting. 1920 saw progress in a number of technologies, Dame Nellie Melba performed the first worldwide radio broadcast by a professional singer for the Marconi Company in the UK. While Dame Nellie initially resisted the opportunity, saying that her voice was not a subject for experimentation, the fee of £1,000 for 20 minutes work, which is about $90,000 in today's money, got her interested in the experiment. The broadcast was heard across the UK, in France, Sweden and as far away as Iran. Nellie Melba said, but they haven't bought a ticket or bought a record. And the battle for performers to be paid for broadcasts has continued to this day. Football and radio would meet in the 1920s, but that's for a later episode. Another invention that was launched in 1920 was the simple Band-Aid, still being used over 100 years later as players deal with the blood rule. Let's look at the lead-up to the football season. In January, it was confirmed that there would be no team added to the competition, redrawing the boundaries for the still-disputed district system was the sticking point. Nine teams would compete in 1920, with one getting a bye each week. There were moves in February to update club jumpers, to reduce clashes with other clubs. Geelong knocked back the option of a pale blue jumper, white shorts and pale blue socks. 
they were happy to move to white shorts rather than their existing blue shorts to reduce confusion when playing Collingwood. St Kilda were offered the option of a draft board layout with coloured squares on the front and back of their jumpers. They declined that option. March saw some confusion for Richmond with respect to their coach. On Tuesday, 16th of March, Norman Clark was reappointed as Richmond coach for 1920. Not too big a surprise, given that he led them to the first VFL Grand Final in 1919. But on the following Thursday, Clark applied for, and was appointed, as the coach of Carlton, returning to the club that he had left after the 1918 season. Even by Richmond standards of the 1980s and 1990s, this was a short coaching appointment. He would be replaced by Dan Minogue. More about that later. The season opened on Saturday the 1st of May. As is usual, most clubs were optimistic about their chances, form always being good before it's actually tested in games that count for premiership points. However, there were troubling signs at St Kilda. A reform group had taken control of the club during the off-season with the intent of creating a united club, but the Herald reported a flare-up in the week before the season started. Time would tell if the Seasiders had put division and disunity behind them. In a familiar move, there was an update to the rules to open the game up and reduce the amount of hustling and bustling on the field. It was a minor change. The boundary umpires were directed to throw the ball in variable distances between 5 to 25 yards. Previously, throw-ins were limited to 15 yards and ruck contests had turned into exhibitions of strong men blocking the ruckman and allowing a third man up. Also, the centre circle had been increased in diameter from 5 feet to 8 feet to further separate the ruckman at the bounce of the ball. We will see if the changes impact the play. South Melbourne's record-breaking forward, Harold Robinson, would miss the first game of the season against Melbourne. He was on his honeymoon in Dalesford. Collingwood had the honour of unfurling their premiership flag at Victoria Park, but Essendon upset the party by having a comfortable win. Melbourne also showed that they were going to be competitive this year by defeating South Melbourne. The teams that had finished the season first and second in 1919 had lost their opening games, and Melbourne was celebrating their first win since round 15 in 1915, although they did not play any games at all between 1916 to 1918. The other two games went as expected, Carlton beating St Kilda and Richmond already nominated as one of the Premiership favourites, proving too strong for Fitzroy. Collingwood's loss was more understandable when it was realised that one of their selected players, Alec Much, had an injured knee and could not play. But all the potential substitutes had played in the Collingwood Districts team. The reserves were not available. Jock McHale took his place in the team. His last outing in a playing career of 17 years... 261 games, and the first time he had played since Round 7 in 1918. But don't worry, Coach McHale will be part of the show for many seasons to come. Outside the game, trouble was brewing between the VFL and the union movement. The league had refused permission for collections at the games for the Broken Hill Strike Fund. A boycott threat by the rail union had been averted for round one, but in Geelong, the Wharf Labourers' Union carried a motion 
banning its members from playing, training or even attending games. Union members would be liable for £1 fines or £2 for second offences. There was talk of picketing the gates to the ground. The league's position that it was not an issue that they could address on their own account. They threw the decision on allowing collections to the ground managers. A clever handball indeed. Geelong decided to follow the example of Collingwood and allow collections, thus avoiding the threatened boycott. Round two saw huge crowds back at the game again. Richmond hosted Carlton at Punt Road Oval in a grand final replay. Over 30,000 people squeezed their way into the ground and the fence gave way at some places and spectators sat around the boundary rather than return to the crush. It was another win for the Tigers, an official symbol for the club from this season onwards. And Melbourne also picked up their second win, an exciting turnaround for the Fuchsias after no wins at all in 1919. In the modern era, games can be played on any day of the week, from early afternoon, mid-afternoon, the sometimes derided twilight slot, and the ever-popular night games. But in May 1920, the VFL experimented with morning games. On a Wednesday, the occasion was the visit of the Prince of Wales, which had everyone excited. The Prince was due to arrive on Wednesday, May 26, which of course would be a holiday. To allow supporters of Collingwood and Richmond, due to play at the Punt Road Oval, and Fitzroy, who were hosting Geelong, time to get to the Prince's Parade, those games would be held in the morning starting at 10.45am. The games at St Kilda, who were hosting Essendon, and South Melbourne, who were playing Carlton, were scheduled for the afternoon. The plan being people could go to those grounds after the procession had passed. It remains to be seen if the AFL will ever revisit the option of morning games. On the morning of the Prince's visit, the Punt Road Oval was again jam-packed with over 30,000 spectators. Richmond was undefeated and taking on Collingwood, who had beaten them in the grand final the year before. As reported in the Herald, about 40 young men watched the play from the roof of the grandstand. Towards the finish of the game, the excitement became intense and those on the roof began to move about. A moment before the final bell rang, Hugh James took a mark that placed Richmond in a position to win. Those on the roof then stepped forward, and the heavy weight caused the veranda posts to give way. For an instant, it looked as if those underneath would be crushed. Fortunately, the sound of timber crashing gave sufficient warning and they all rushed clear of danger. The roof fell slowly, and those on top were able to slide down safely to the ground, with the exception of a small boy who grabbed the end of the main roof. He held this position until someone lifted him clear. A great story to take back to school or work the next day. Nobody seriously injured, albeit some repair work required at Punt Road. Hugh James kicked the goal, and as the Argus summarised, they had lost a veranda, but won the match. The interstate game between Victoria and South Australia provided a break from the season. In what seems a generous move by the VFL, the curtain raiser for the game was an exhibition game of soccer, or, as it was called in the press, the British Association game. The football record provided details of the rules, 
but it is hard to imagine such cooperation between the codes occurring in modern times. The big surprise for the interstate game was the selection of Horry Clover at half forward after just three games for Carlton, but sadly he was injured in the game against Essendon before the big match and was replaced. Another name that you might be familiar with was playing for the South Australians. Victor Richardson, grandfather to Ian, Greg and Trevor Chappell, played on the halfback flank. The South Australians won by five points in front of 30,000 people. St Kilda were having yet another troubled season. A reform group had taken over the committee at the start of the year, but it was still not a happy club. William Schmidt was a brilliant roaming centreman who was sometimes accused of being selfish. He also upset his teammates with his perfectionist attitude. Things were coming to a head in 1920 when three St Kilda players said they would not play if he was selected. He had applied for a clearance to Richmond, where he had started his career, but the Saints had refused him. Now, in June, Kikero in the Herald reported that the St Kilda committee had decided by a majority of one to select him in the team to play Collingwood on the King's birthday long weekend, which sparked talk of resignation from several players and officials. Not a good time to be at the Saints. But joining Schmidt in the game against Collingwood was Harry Cumberland, known today as the oldest player to take the field in a VFL-AFL game at the age of 43. He had been a key player for almost as long as the VFL existed. This was his first game since returning from the war, but we should not forget that he first played for Melbourne in 1898, winning a premiership in 1900, before joining the Saints in 1903. He had travelled to New Zealand and to South Australia, winning the McGreary Medal in 1911. During the war, he was wounded three times, including being shot in the knee. But he put his hand up to play for the Saints in their time of need, almost as soon as he had stepped off the troop ship. The crowd gave him a huge cheer as he entered the ground, in a game where 29 of the 36 players had not even been born when he first played VFL footy. At the end of the game, both sides gathered in the dressing rooms to give three cheers to the veteran. Vic Cumberland would play ten games for the Saints in 1920 before finally retiring, and it's unlikely that anyone will take his record of being the oldest player of the game at 43 years. The 26th of June saw the halfway point of the season, and Richmond made a comprehensive statement of their intent. Playing Essendon at Punt Road, Richmond were six goals down at three-quarter time and looking at their first defeat for the season. Ten minutes into the final quarter and the Tigers were still six goals down. But then the revival began, the Tigers kicking eight goals seven and holding Essendon scoreless to win by 20 points. One of the all-time turnarounds. The Tigers were on top of the ladder, undefeated, and there was half a season to go. The frustration in the Essendon players saw Fred Baring reported by umpire Norton for asking him how much money he had on the match. By round 16, Richmond and Fitzroy were the two top teams, with the Tigers ahead on percentage. The other candidates to the final four were Carlton, Collingwood and South Melbourne. In round 17, Carlton hosted Collingwood. The winner would be guaranteed a spot in the four. 51,000 people managed to squeeze into Princes Park 
where the Blues delivered a thrashing to the Pies. South Melbourne travelled to Geelong, needing a win to turn the final game of the season against Collingwood into a mini-final for the fourth spot. But just as in 1919 when South went to Geelong to lock in top spot, it was the Pivotonians that won the day. South did themselves no favours with wayward kicking, 8 goals 25-73, to lose by 3 points to Geelong, 11 goals 10-76. To rub salt in the wound and make that train trip back home even longer, South Melbourne supporters could count 8 times that they had hit the post, including 5 times in the last quarter from 10 scoring shots. The only issue to be decided in the final round was whether Fitzroy could have a big enough win to gain the 4.3 percentage points needed to overtake Richmond. But both teams had comfortable wins and the first semi-final would be between Fitzroy and neighbouring rivals Collingwood while Richmond and Carlton would play the second semi-final. The Tigers, topping the VFL ladder for the first time, would have the valuable right of challenge. 1920 was the 23rd season of the VFL and Collingwood had only missed the finals twice and had five premierships. While Fitzroy may not have been as regular at making the finals, they were the leading premiership team at this stage with six flags. The most recent being the slightly odd season in 1916 when only four teams competed. So these two neighbouring suburbs were two of the big clubs of the VFL. Fitzroy had only lost two games this season finished second on the ladder and had beaten the Magpies in both their meetings. They were understandably favourites for the game, but there was history between these two clubs and the Magpies were looking to defend their premiership. In the Friday Night Herald, Richmond's captain coach Dan Minogue tipped his old club Collingwood to win. Perhaps he was looking forward to playing them in the grand final. Dick Lee, Collingwood's grand old full forward, had missed the last seven games of the season but was selected for the final. He was a player that delivered something special in the big games. It had been a wetter than average year and the lead into the finals had seen plenty of spring rain. At the Friday meeting of the league delegates, both Fitzroy and Collingwood asked that the Junior League semi-final, due to be played as a curtain raiser, be cancelled or shifted to protect the turf. But the league president, Sir Baldwin Spencer, ruled this out of order. The Adverse Weather Committee made their deliberation at about 11am, when the sun had started to shine. The game was on, but under false pretenses from the weather gods. Once the decision to play had been made, the rain returned in abundance. But that did not stop 40,000 people making their way to the MCG to see a low-scoring slog from these two teams. In the final game of the season... Fitzroy had set a record first quarter score, kicking 9 goals before finishing the game with 22 goals as they chased percentage against a lacklustre St Kilda. There would be nothing like that sort of effort on the sodden MCG today. Collingwood were reported to be the best wet weather team in the league, and this was a day for ducks. Water was covering much of the ground surface. Players were commended for how straight they kicked the ball along the ground. There were some easy misses in front of goals, but as noted by the age, they were easy shots on a dry day, not in these wet conditions. By three-quarter time, Collingwood were in front, three goals 9-27, to Fitzroy, two goals 5-17. Close enough to give the Maroons hope, but the playing conditions 
allowed the Magpies to hold on with defensive play. Fitzroy did get a goal, but then so did the Magpies, and they managed to keep the ball in their forward line for much of the quarter, even if the scoring was mainly points. It did not really matter, so long as Fitzroy did not take the ball forward. The final score was a win for Collingwood, 4 goals, 17-41, to Fitzroy, 3 goals, 5-23. The Maroons' season was over, and the Magpies could still dream of back-to-back premierships. The second semi-final was scheduled for Saturday 18th of September. The Tigers and Carlton were one win each from their matches at Punt Road and Princess Park, but it was the Tigers who had had the better season so far, and they did owe the Blues something. It had taken more than 10 years for Richmond to record a win against Carlton, having joined the VFL in 1908 and not beating the Blues until 1918. Richmond skipper Dan Minogue was out with a case of tonsillitis. Kikoro, in the Herald, was tipping the Blues, while a panel of experts, including Dick Lee, Fitzroy's captain, Percy Parrott, and former Carlton captain Rod McGregor, were split between the two teams. Carlton added an element of tension by disputing the eligibility of a new Richmond recruit. George Ogilvie had played his first game in the last round of the season against Essendon, joining the Tigers from Echuca, although he had spent time in Yarraville before enlisting in the army during the war. Richmond officials were adamant that he had a permit, and until that was withdrawn, he was eligible. It was another game in the mud. As described by Saturday Night's Herald, latecomers were condemned to the saturated seats in the outer, rather than the shelter of the grandstand. But still, 62,000 people came despite the conditions. The ground was cut up again by the Junior League game, leaving Richmond and Carlton to slog it out in deplorable conditions. The Richmond Guardian described affairs as mud and slush as juicy and slippery as the ripest pigsty in the Bungaree district. By way of comparison, the VFA had decided to postpone their game, given their lack of confidence in the weather. But this just meant more people going to the MCG rather than the VFA game at the East Melbourne Cricket Ground. Pivot, in the age, described footballers abandoning high-marking, long-kicking and bouncing the ball. It was a contest under an improvised wet-weather code and bore no semblance to the normal game. With over 62,000 people crammed into the ground, the fence gave way near the punt road end and the crowd encircled the ground several rows deep. Elsewhere, some climbed fences inside the ground and made themselves temporary members for the day. Given the need to find room for such a crowd, neither the MCC nor the police took action against the new guests. Conditions were terrible for the players and the spectators, but it was a thrilling contest to make up for the inconvenience. There was nothing pretty about the play, but determination and strength were on display from both teams. Richmond's ruckman, Bernie Herbert, was a driving force, and the controversial recruit, George Ogilvy, was playing a champion's game. For Carlton, their rover, Gordon Green, had to leave the ground in the first quarter with a nasty gash over his eye, but he returned after half-time. Stitches inserted, bandaged up with only one eye showing, and, in the pivotal late stages of the game, he was one of the best players on the ground, perhaps having slightly fresher legs, despite the damage to his head. The half-time break went longer than expected, while some thought it might be allowing the players to clean up before venturing back out onto the mud heap, formerly known as the MCG, 
It was also because the umpires had to consider their position given the influx of the crowd around and onto the ground. The goal umpires were finding it hard to do their job. One had had his leg grabbed and, on another occasion, a spectator waved a white towel when the goal umpire was signalling a behind with his flag, causing some confusion for the goal umpire at the other end of the ground. And one goal that Richmond scored in the first half might well have gone out of bounds and bounced off a policeman's back before the Richmond player knocked it through for a goal. The police arranged to clear space around the goals to reduce the interference in the second half. The game ebbed and flowed for three quarters. As in the first semi-final, there were shots at goal that would have been considered simple under normal conditions, but kicks were sliding off into every direction today. There was only a point the difference as the team started for the fourth quarter. Richmond on four goals six and Carlton on four goals five. For a while, the last quarter was locked up, but then umpire Jack Elder halted the game for about seven minutes so that the police could push spectators off the ground behind the boundary line. After that break, it was all Carlton as they kicked three goals six in the last quarter. Richmond did not trouble the scorers. The bell rang to end the game, and as the players left the field to try and get warm and clean off the MCG mud, the Blues began to focus on the final against Collingwood, while the Tigers started planning for a grand final in two weeks' time, thanks to the right of challenge. The VFL administrators might have started thinking of ways to spend the money that an extra week of finals would bring in. As umpire Elder was walking off the ground, he was gently patted on his face by an admiring woman, who assured him that he had done well. Well meant, I'm sure, but neither players nor spectators should touch the umpire, even in a kindly manner. Richmond would have a week off to rest and recover, while Collingwood would take on Carlton. At Tigerland, there might have been a few nerves. Gerald Rush, a handy forward flanker who had played 15 games in 1920, had badly injured his knee and was ruled out of the grand final. And captain coach Dan Minogue was still unwell with tonsillitis. In a time before antibiotics, many diseases could become life-threatening. He was reported to be in a state of delirium and had two abscesses removed. Recovery in time for the grand final was looking doubtful. In the meantime, the Richmond committee were on the lookout at country finals for any players that might be worth considering in the grand final team. The Richmond Guardian reported that a Bill James from Kyabram was training at Punt Road and he showed great promise. The final, as it was known then, even if it has been retrospectively classified as a preliminary final, was played on Saturday the 16th of September. Another huge crowd of 58,000 people made their way to the MCG. Many tried to get there early, only to find that others had got in even earlier. The grandstands were full at the start of the juniors' curtain raiser, leaving standing room only for the Lakeguards. In the member stand were several invalid soldiers, still recovering from their injuries in the war. One soldier had been transported to the ground in his bed and watched the game with enthusiasm. In their two clashes during the season, both Carlton and Collingwood had scored a win, and there was no clear-cut favourite for this game. Gordon Green would be missing for Carlton after his head wound in the match against Richmond. His place was taken by Charlie Fisher. Sadly for Collingwood supporters, their team's captain Dick Lee's injured knee kept him out of this game, and he was replaced by Harry Curtis, a long-time magpie who would eventually become the club president. 
It's also worth noting that Gordon Coventry was playing his fourth game for Collingwood in what would be a 306-game, 1,299-goal career. A record number of goals, until overtaken by Tony Lockett in the 1990s. The rain had fallen the day before, leaving the ground heavy, slippery, and not much better than the weeks before. But thankfully for spectators, they could at least stay dry as they watched. The game was not as close as the two semi-finals, and Collingwood clearly had the advantage of a week's rest, where Carlton had to front up after a gruelling game against Richmond. From the first quarter, Collingwood had the advantage, almost putting the game beyond Carlton in the first 30 minutes, leading the game by four goals at quarter time, and looking much fresher. Carlton did more attacking in the second quarter and scored three goals, but Collingwood kicked four and moved further in front and then dominated the third quarter. They then managed to hold off any efforts by the Blues to make a comeback in the last quarter. Gordon Coventry showed what he would be capable of by kicking five goals, his best effort in his debut season. It topped off a fine day for the Magpies. They had won their way into the grand final with a chance for back-to-back premierships, and their junior team had won the premierships in the curtain raiser, defeating University. It was a good day for their supporters. There were some clouds on the horizon, though. Mal Seddon had been reported for striking Percy Dakin, and both M. Wilson and Bill Toomey, the founder of a clan of Toomey footballers for Collingwood, came out of the game with injuries. Grand final week is always an occasion in Melbourne, with rumours of injuries, sometimes tribunal hearings, and the question of who will be fit, who will make the teams, and who will be the unlucky players missing out. Well, grand final week 1920 had all of that and more. First, a slight digression to the VFA, who had played their semi-final between Footscray and North Melbourne as the VFL had their final. The game ended sensationally at the East Melbourne Cricket Ground, where Footscray were in front by four points when the bell rang to end the game. But the umpire did not hear the all-important clang, and a mark was taken by North's Considine, 30 yards from goal. Then the ground was invaded by spectators, believing the game was over, despite efforts to clear a space for a shot to decide the match. The players had to abandon the field for their safety. For days, no one knew the result. Had Footscray won? Should Considine be set back out on the field to have his kick? Or what? While the VFL's rule was quite clear that the game was not over until the umpire signalled, the VFA was not so clear. The VFA delegates ruled that the game was to be replayed, but Footscray was opposed to this decision. On the Wednesday of that week, Footscray decided by just one vote to participate in the replay, a decision that worked out well for the team from the West. They won the semi-final replay and went on to win the VFA Premiership that year, a VFA final series that must have had people talking. In the VFL, controversy abounded. Richmond's thrilling new recruit, George Ogilvy, was ruled ineligible. The critical issue was that players were tied by residents under the district system unless they had been away at the war for three years. Ogilvy gave evidence that he had served for about three years, but a detailed analysis of the records showed that it was actually two years and nine months. 
The Permit and Umpire Committee informed Richmond they were not to play Ogilvy in future matches. Fortunately for the Tigers, there was no retrospective action for the game that he had played that might have put their top-of-the-ladder finish at risk and given Fitzroy the right of challenge. I don't think anyone wanted to open that can of worms. Richmond's captain coach, Dan Minogue, was also under a cloud. He had gone to Ballarat to help his recovery from tonsillitis. But during the week, rumours galloped around the city on his progress. At one point, the word was that he had actually died. But he made it to training on the Thursday night. He limited his efforts to some skipping rope in the club rooms. He would not be fully fit, but he would play. Collingwood's Ruckman Les Hughes was also dealing with a family tragedy. His sister had died and her funeral was held on the Friday before the grand final. It must have been an enormous challenge to focus on a football game in those circumstances. Mel Seddon would definitely miss the game after the tribunal hearing on the Thursday evening found him guilty of striking and while acknowledging that there had been provocation, still suspended him for three weeks. Unlike the semi-finals and the final, the grand final was played on a fine day on a firm ground that allowed the players to show their skills. But there would be several players who could not make it onto the field. Collingwood were missing Dick Lee through injury, Mal Seton due to suspension, and Richmond were denied the service of George Ogilvy, having been ruled out by the league committee, and the leading goal kicker, George Bayliss, was out with the flu. In came Robert Carew, who had last played in round nine, and the big shock was the selection of Bill James from Kyabram, selected for his debut in the grand final. The umpire for the big game was once again Jack Elder for his ninth grand final. An extraordinary effort, but he's not finished his run yet. More on that in a future episode. As in the 1919 grand final, Collingwood were led on the field by their captain, Con McCarthy, and their coach was Jock McHale. Richmond had a first-time captain coach leading them into the grand final. Former Collingwood captain, Dan Minogue who, after returning from the war, had asked for a clearance from Collingwood, driven by a number of factors. If he wanted to become a coach, there was no room at Collingwood, with Jock McHale well positioned. And there were some reports that he was unhappy about the way that Collingwood had treated a teammate, Jim Sadler. Collingwood refused the clearance, and Minogue had to stand out of the game for a year. He took over the captaincy of the Tigers, And then, when Norm Clark resigned as coach in February, Minogue became playing coach as well. Collingwood were reported to be so angry at this betrayal that they turned his photo to face the wall. The Richmond Guardian reported that it was put into a cupboard and then facing the wall. Believe it or not. The curtain raiser before the big game was between two veterans teams, representing Richmond and Essendon, playing off for the premiership of the Return Soldiers Imperial League. Richmond Diggers won by three goals. 54,000 spectators made their way to the MCG on a fine Saturday, the 2nd of October. They paid £2,550 in a variety of pennies, halfpennies, threepences, sixpences and other coins that were collected from the turnstiles on a regular basis and bagged up. Strong men were needed to carry the combined 244 kilograms of coins in three separate trips in a motor car, transporting the takings to the Bank of Australasia, 
where they were deposited for counting and reconciliation on the following Monday morning, which also included filtering out the counterfeit coins, the coppers wrapped in silver, and some foreign currencies and other miscellaneous tokens. One of the more notable guests for the grand final was the famous author of the Sherlock Holmes books, Arthur Conan Doyle. He was impressed by the game, saying that having played rugby and soccer and also watched American football, he thought Australian rules was magnificent and from a spectacular point of view, it was probably the best of them all. Richmond had beaten Collingwood in their two games during the season, but both were close affairs and there was keen anticipation for another thrilling game to end the season. The majority of the crowd were cheering for Richmond, hoping to see the club win their first premiership, but there was no shortage of Magpie supporters looking for back-to-back premierships. Richmond started with the breeze in a tight opening quarter, with the defences of both teams dominating initially. Collingwood scored the first goal of the day, when their forward pocket, Ernie Lumsden, was awarded a free kick, and he punted the goal through for a major. It was a fast game, described as a cracker by observer in the Argus. Donald Don scored Richmond's first goal, and the quarter ended with both teams on one goal to eight points. The second quarter started well for the Tigers, with Hugh James taking a high mark deep in the forward line, and he put Richmond ahead by a goal, much to the delight of their supporters. Richmond were playing better football than Collingwood, even outshining them in their quick passing game, which had been Collingwood's famous style of play. But the Magpies, Gus Dobra, and his other teammates in the back line were repelling attack after attack. Otherwise, the Tigers might have got right away. The halftime break saw Richmond with a small lead, 9 goals 5-17, to Collingwood, still on 1 goal 2-8. Early in the third quarter, Donald Don picked up the ball in the middle of the ground and began his forward run, ducking and weaving to avoid the defenders with the roar of the crowd growing as he moved closer within range and took a shot. The effort was worth a goal, but the result was just a behind. But Don was in good form, and combined with Hugh James to get the Tigers' first goal for the quarter. Then Gordon Coventry settled things down for the Magpies, with a well-timed kick to score their first goal since the first quarter. The Tigers tried to stretch the lead again, by using a series of passes to get the ball into the forward line. Donald Don was tight up against the boundary line with all the pressure that a grand final brings to bear, but he kept a cool head and kicked Trawley to push Richmond's lead out by one more goal. But Collingwood would not let that elastic break. Gordon Coventry once again answered and the quarter ended where it had started. Richmond had a nine-point lead. They had been playing better football, but Collingwood had done enough to keep themselves in the game. There was one quarter of the season to go. Richmond were nine points up, but they had never won a premiership. Collingwood were playing in their fifth grand final in the last six years and were the reigning premiers. Would their experience give them the advantage in the last moments of the game? Richmond had the first chance to score, but centre-half forward Bob Wetherill missed his shot and then Collingwood swung into attack. Richmond repelled this effort, but when they went forward, it was Gus Dobra again blocking the way, as he had done so many times today. Then the pressure began to tell. Perhaps it was the warm weather. Perhaps it was the tough game played against Carlton the week before, while Richmond was enjoying a rest. Maybe it was just a better game by the Tigers. But whatever the reason, the goals started to come for Richmond. Max Hislop, the Tigers' backman, rushed the ball forward, 
and Donald Don scored his second and the team's fifth goal. From the bounce, the ball went forward again with the pace that they had been showing all day and it was centre-half forward Bob Wetherill kicking his first goal. That elastic band was beginning to fray. But before it broke completely, the Magpies got closer again when Charlie Panham passed the ball forward and Murray Shee scored Collingwood's fourth goal. They were not going to let the Tigers get away easily. Donald Don could have calmed the Richmond supporters down, but his two shots at goal went astray. The Collingwood Barrackers were then making all the noise as Les Hughes and Ernie Wilson tried for their fifth goal, but it was defended well by the Tigers' backman. The honour of kicking the sealer came down to the Richmond debutante playing his first and only game in a grand final. Bill James, from Coyabram, ran from the wing and kicked the goal that broke that elastic band and let the Richmond faithful know that they had the premiership. Just as well, really, because Gordon Coventry was not done with yet, and he got his third goal just as the bell rang, but it was too late. The Richmond supporters streamed onto the ground and carried their heroes into the change rooms. Richmond had their first VFL premiership, becoming the first expansion club to win a grand final, 7 goals 10-52, to a gallant Collingwood, 5 goals 5-35. Those Richmond residents who could not make it to the ground might have learnt the results by looking up to the town hall. The council had declared that if the Tigers won, the municipal flag would fly high up on the town hall, and as soon as the result was rung through, the banner was unfurled, spreading the good news to all who could see it. In a time before radio and television, and with only a few homes having telephones, this might have been the fastest way to spread the news. Unlike previous seasons, the press contained far more details of the post-game celebrations. Maybe it was to honour the breakthrough premiership for Richmond. Or perhaps, now that the time of war and reserve were well in the past, it was okay to share the celebrations and the good times. In the rooms after the games, the celebrations were loud and prolonged. When Jim Sharp, president of Collingwood, was finally able to make his way through the crowd, He was gracious and charming. Despite the reports that have entered the history books about the bad blood between Collingwood and Dan Minogue, Jim Sharp congratulated their old captain, who was, he said, a most capable leader. And he took some consolation that he had learnt his game at Collingwood. He also said that if not Collingwood, he would rather see the Tigers premiers than any other team. He finished his short speech by hoping the two clubs could meet in the grand final again next year. Dick Lee also spoke, congratulating the team and recognising that they were the better team on the day. The Tigers were driven in seven motor cars to a dinner in St Kilda. Then they made their way back into the city, making several laps through Burke Street and surrounds to a cheering crowd. Then a journey into the heart of Richmond, where they paused in front of the town hall, still flying the municipal flag in celebration. 2,000 people watched speeches and a special effort by Ruckman Barney Herbert, who climbed up onto the statue of former Richmond Mayor and long-time club president George Bennett. When he was standing up in full view of the adoring crowd, he held up a crayfish in each hand and he asked, What do we do? And the crowd yelled back at the top of their voices, Eat him alive! The Tigers would celebrate some more on a two-week trip to Tasmania. They would play one game in Huonville, but with the cricket season well underway, there were no grounds available for other matches. 
it had been a record final series in terms of attendance and money raised. Football was more popular than ever and the VFL was the most popular league in the country. But the challenge over control of grounds and the split of admission payments between the ground managers and the cricket clubs before football teams got their share was an ongoing concern. The Cricket Association would still not come to an agreement with the league on the dates for their respective seasons. A proposed solution discussed in the Argus in October 1920 sounds many years ahead of its time. The suggestion was for the league to gain control of two grounds in Melbourne and play two double headers for the four matches on each Saturday. One potential venue was the Exhibition Gardens, where there was an old cycling velodrome that could be redeveloped into a football ground. The VFL and the clubs would then have control on where the money went and could choose when to start and end their season. Whether the finals would still be played at the MCG was not raised in the article, but given the last AFL game was played at Princess Park in 2005, leaving just two grounds in Melbourne, this line of thinking was about 85 years ahead of the game. There would be ongoing challenges between cricket clubs and ground management across many football grounds for many years to come. While talking of grounds, Essendon was shocked to learn that their home, the East Melbourne Cricket Ground, was to be reclaimed by the government for use in the Jollymont Rail Yards after the 1921 season. The same olds had one year to find a new home ground. One suggestion was the proposed Exhibition Gardens Oval, but we will see what happens in the next episode. I'll include a picture of the location of the East Melbourne Ground on the website, grandfinalhistory.com.au. The league was also grappling with the challenge of whether to admit another club and return to a 10-team competition, avoiding the bye each week. But despite interest from North Melbourne, Footscray, Paran, Brunswick and Hawthorne, the VEX challenge of redrawing the district boundaries meant that the decision was put off for another year. And before we finish for this episode, we should revisit one of the more unusual grand final stories of the league's history. Billy James, the recruit from Kyabram that made his debut in a grand final in his one and only game of league football. A unique achievement. For many years, the accepted story was a shooting accident injured his foot in the off-season, cutting short a promising career. But, as reported on the Richmond website, the true story was uncovered by big footy poster Rob Harris. There was a gunshot injury, but it occurred in 1925, well after the opportunity for Bill James to return to Richmond for the 1921 season. The real story seems to be the ties of family and farm in Kyabram were more important than the uncertain opportunity to play football in the city. While players were paid in this era, it was not like the full-time job with contracts and significant rewards that modern players receive. For some, like Billy, the rewards of working on a family farm and playing footy for the local team counted for more than maybe making it to the Tigers team. And that's where we'll leave 1920. The Tigers, including Billy James, enjoying a well-earned trip to Tasmania before they approached the 1921 season, aiming for a third grand final and a second premiership. While Essendon will be on a lookout for a new home as they play their last season in East Melbourne. Join me next time to see how they go. If you've enjoyed Grand Final History, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts from. The more goals we kick, the easier it is for others to find the podcast.
If you have questions or you want to leave feedback, please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.com.au or check out the grandfinalhistory.com.au website or Facebook or Twitter for more Grand Final History. Thank you.